Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abezerite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. We'll dismiss our school-age kids to the back. And as they're going there, if you haven't already, uh, flip in your Bible to Judges chapter 6. It's in the Old Testament. We're in the first half of the Bible. You'll get there. Just keep going. You know, it's amazing that we gather. What a gift it is to be able to gather on a Sunday morning and to proclaim boldly, all hail King Jesus. And there are millions of Christians all over the world that are in basements quietly singing because the authorities are right outside looking for them. And you ask yourself, you know, why do we even, why do we even gather anyway? Why do, why are we here? Other than to corporately declare the greatness of our God. And I pray that that's something that we don't just say with our mouths and maybe even our minds, but that it would really grip our hearts. We started a, uh, the Above and Beyond uh, initiative a year ago, and I'm not going to really go far into that other than to say, friends, that God wants to do above and beyond what you could think or ask or even imagine. I read this story years ago. I've shared it here before about this couple on their honeymoon. And they got an Airbnb and they got to it late at night, the first night of their, their married life. And uh, they drove quite a distance. They got there late at night and they fumbled with the code and they got in. And it didn't look the same as the pictures. You ever had that experience? It just didn't look quite the same. They hired a good photographer. And they get in, and they can't even find a bed. There's a couch. There's a little half bath. And so what they thought and expected to be glorious was, was pretty disappointing. And the husband slept on the floor and the bride on the couch their first night. And the next morning, they 
trying to call the owner. What did, what did, you, what did you sell us? And they said, oh, that's, that's just the foyer. You got to go through that next door. And they went through the next door. And, of course, there's where it was, this palatial estate. And I feel like a lot of us, this is where we get with God. We just taste just a little bit of it, just the foyer of it. And we hear him in the Gospels talk about this abundant life or in Paul's epistles, this above and beyond kind of thing, this immeasurably more than we can ask or think. We hear the words of Jesus about these rivers of life within us, and yet we, we've never experienced that. And I just want to remind you that it's real and that God wants to do more than you could ask or think. Jesus said that money would be the currency of our lives. And something happened. We went, we went through this above and beyond a year ago. As, as you opened your wallets and gave to see a new facility built that just is going to facilitate the mission God did way more than you could ask or think. Some of those stories Jason shared today. And I just want to remind you that God wants to do more than you could ask or think. And before I preach today, would you take a moment just right where you're at and would you ask this Jesus that we just sang to, all hail King Jesus. The one that talked about that we're joining with creation to worship, would you ask him to speak to you? Lord, we see the evidence of brokenness all around us. Things seem to be darker and darker. And yet I can sense this, just the hope rising. Outwardly, things are wasting away, but inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. God, you know us, you know our hearts. Do what only you can do in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in Judges. I talk about Gideon a lot. He's one of my heroes. Not because of how strong he is, you're going to see he's... He's not the strong man. But because of how obedient he was. To give you some context, the people have come out of Israel, I mean out of Egypt. Moses has led them. Moses is dead. He hands the reins over to Joshua. Joshua leads them across the Jordan. This incredible moment. He calls everybody together and he says, you choose this day whom you'll serve. As for me and my house. We're going to serve the Lord. Make no question about it. This is where we're going. This is the side we're on. And he just lets them decide. Well, many of them decide wrongly. Joshua died, and maybe the most heartbreaking verse in the Bible is Judges chapter 2 and verse 10. That said, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. 
And then in verse 11, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served Baal. That was one of the prominent false gods that many countries still actually worship today. And this would become a repeatable theme in the life of the Israelites. They would do what was right in their own eyes. God would allow or he would actually send discipline to them. They would grow weary of the discipline. They would repent. They would come back to God. God would deliver them again. They would walk in a season of blessing. And in that season of blessing, they would get proud and prideful because they thought that they're the ones that earned the blessing. And then God in his grace would literally send someone else or allow someone else to come in and oppress them once again. And you see the cycle dozens and dozens for thousands of years. This is their cycle. And before any of us gets too judgy in here, this is what happens in my own life so often. I'm confident before the Lord. I take my eyes off him and I do things that seem right to myself, right in my own eyes. I face the consequences of living a life with me at the center. I cry out to God. He relentlessly pursues my heart. He comes near again. I walk in a season of blessing and then I get prideful again. It's God's grace that God brings us back. It's God's grace that he pursues us. It's God's grace here that God gave this nation of Israel, these judges. You should read about them. They're, they're pretty incredible. It's the name of the book. Not someone, a judge that would rule with a gavel as we're used to a judge. The Hebrew word translated to judges is really this word heroic leader. One of the major characters in the book that we meet at the very beginning are the, is the Midianites, the Midianite army. They were huge. They were a thorn in Israel's side. And most times Israel wins the battles against the Midianites. But here as we jump in this story in chapter 6, because of their disobedience, because of Israel's disobedience, they're not walking in God's favor. And the Midianites have been kicking tail for about seven years. So much so if you read the description that every time that harvest would get close, all the Midianites would come in, it says even in scripture, they would come in like locusts and they would take everything in sight. And they've actually pushed the Israelites out of their land, the fertile country of the promised land. And now they have been pushed out of that and they're living in the caves. And after living in the caves for seven years, they have not repented they're just now crying out to the Lord. Seven years, Midian has oppressed them, taken over their cities. But instead of turning to the Lord, they're living in poverty, humiliated. They finally cry out to God. But before sending a deliverer, he sends them a prophet. He says in the verses we didn't read right before in verse 7 through 10, the prophet says, but you have not obeyed my voice. God sent a messenger to tell them the problem was not Midian, the problem was them. It wasn't that the Midianite army was so strong, it was that Israel was so disobedient. 
And it's human nature, right, to blame someone else for our problems or the problems we face or some of the things we walk through. But I love this too. Even before they even asked the prophet told them before they repented, he sent a deliverer. In verse 11 of chapter 6, the angel of the Lord. Now this is what theologians call Christophany or theophany. This is pre-incarnate Jesus. If it was just an angel, it would say an angel. But this is an angel of the Lord, and he came and sat under this terebinth tree, which I went down a wormhole this week just looking at the terebinth tree. Pretty amazing. (laughs) I didn't know Oprah made it in, but she's in here too. Which belonged to Joash while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide from the Midianites. And an angel of the Lord, this is Jesus, pre-incarnate Jesus, appearing to Gideon. He says in verse 12, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now just like Abraham last week, this opening is pretty humorous. Gideon is not a mighty man of valor. For all of you that know anything about farming, he's trying to sift wheat inside of wine press. You know, the way that you would thresh wheat and separate it from the chaff would be to chop it all up and put it in a bucket and wait for a good gust of wind, preferably on top of a hill somewhere, and you would throw it all up in the air, and the wind would blow the chaff away, and the wheat would fall back into your bucket. That's how they did it for thousands of years. But Gideon is not on top of a hill. He's in a bunker somewhere, a wine press, it actually says, in the lowest part, hidden from everything else, normally underground, and he's artificially probably producing the wind. He's got his cousin over there in the corner with some kind of like leaf, like trying to, trying to get it done. And an angel appears to him there while he's doing that and greets him with this phrase, O mighty man of valor. But Gideon knows he's not a mighty man of valor. He's fearful. He's inside the wine press. He's scared to death. As a matter of fact, if you read the next couple chapters, he's afraid in every scene. And we learn something about this. Friends, and this is what we learn. Let God define who you are. No one gets to define you but him. He's the one who made you. He's the one that gets to define you. You're not your ethnicity, you're not your habits, your marital status, you're not your successes, you're not your failures, you're not your job or your sin or the things you struggle with over and over, you're not the names your parents called you or what your junior high football coach called you, maybe that's personal to me, or what your classmates called you, you're not who the world tells you that you are, only the one that made you gets to define you. As a matter of fact, this is how you know if it's the enemy in your ear or if it's Jesus in your ear. Because the enemy comes to you and he tries to remind you of what a failure you are. You ever heard this voice of the enemy? Is this only me? He comes like a good prosecutor. Scripture actually calls him the accuser of the brethren. He comes and reminds you of all the places in your life that you've always failed. 
every mistake you've made. He'll go back 20 years if he needs to. He'll remind you of the generational curses on your family and how, what your mom and dad are. and what he, he'll just, he will use anything he needs to to remind you of your failures and mistakes and that you don't quite measure up. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't remind you of all the places you failed. Instead, this is what, this is, look, look at how God works here. He calls you up into the plans that he has for you. Yeah, he deals with your sin, but he first comes with grace and he meets you where you're at and he literally calls you into the destiny that he has for you. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing that Jesus renamed Peter, Peter before Peter did any Peter things? Peter was just an idiot and he kept messing up. Can you imagine the other disciples be like, you're going to call him the rock? Peter is certainly not that, but God knew what he was calling Peter into several years before Peter would actually walk in it. Jesus knew what Peter's life could be and would be if he would just surrender. And Peter with Jesus would be an unstoppable force. You, you see what I'm saying? The same thing with here. This is why Jesus greets Gideon when he's scared to death and hiding in a wine press. And he says, greetings, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. The reason the Lord can call Gideon a mighty man of valor wasn't about his resume, his upbringing, or what he could bench press. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. You see even how it's written? He's a mighty man of valor because the Lord is with him. The reason he's this mighty man of valor is because the Lord is with him, not the other way around. It's not like God looked all over the earth for some mega school ground, playground basketball game, and he saw Gideon over there, and he was the tallest and strongest and smartest and most cunning and agile, and he was like, he's the one I want on my team. No, Gideon's the one that had never picked up a basketball. Friends, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ in this room, you have an advantage even over Gideon because the Lord is not just with you like he's with Gideon, like he's riding shotgun on the way to work or school. If you are in Christ, Scripture says the Spirit of God literally lives inside of you. So the Lord is not just with you or he didn't just do a flyby and spring some magic juju on you or something. He literally is inside of you. This is what Paul would remind the, the, the Corinthian church of. Christ in you, in you is the hope of glory. Friends, for those who are in Christ this morning, you are a son and daughter of the Most High King. You have his joy and his love and his patience and self-control, his very powers at work in you. So don't let the voice of the enemy intimidate you or the voice of those who don't understand you confuse you. Don't let those who come against you slow you down. You've been adopted into the family of the Most High King. You've been clothed in his majesty. Paul calls them robes of righteousness. Co-heir with the Most High God. Well, Gideon argues back like you do. And Gideon said to him in verse 13, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. 
Gideon's asking the same question a lot of you and a lot of us have been asking for the past three years. Lord, if you love us, Lord, if you're for us, why is our world falling apart? And this is the second lesson we learn is that we don't put our faith in our circumstances. We don't measure God's love for us by how well we feel that our life is going. We need only to look back as far as the cross to see how much God loves us. Gideon's going to go through these stages of tests, and we're not going to be able to get to all of them a day. But he, he wants to know if God's really for him and if he's powerful enough to cash the check. God, I know you've said all these things, and I've heard from my ancestors of what you did through Egypt, but I've never seen it with my own eyes. When our circumstances seem to be out of control, friends, we focus our gauge, gaze on the cross of Christ and not on our present circumstances. Gideon's basically asking, God, I've heard of your fame, how you brought us out of Egypt, but, but this didn't, didn't look much like freedom. I'm threshing wheat in a wine press. God, aren't you going to do something about it? This is amazing. And God says, Gideon, you're the something I'm doing. You see, friends, God reconciles and restores the world through people like you and me. And I think we want him to send some kind of angel down to set everything right. And there's an occasion or two in the Old Testament where that happened. But you know the primary measure in which God works, the kingdom of God into this present world, he works it through you. This is what he says in verse 14. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? As we look around, friends, we see all the brokenness all over the world and on the news and everywhere we turn. But this is not how God intended the world. He made the world without sin, without brokenness, without shame, without guilt, without difficulty. But then as sin entered the world, that brokenness fractured and impacted everything in this world. Even creation, Scripture says, is groaning to be restored and renewed again. So we face this reality we live in, the world that we live in now, wrecked by sin and marred by brokenness, and we ask the same thing Gideon's asking, God, what are you going to do about this? Have you ever prayed prayers like that? You got the bad phone call from the doctor or one of your friends did, and you're like, God, are you going to do anything about this? Or you see the devastation of sin as it impacts your very own family or maybe even your own self, and you ask God, aren't you going to do something about this? And God says, friend, you are the something that I'm doing. We carry the gospel around the good news of Jesus in this earthen vessel, the prophet says. The something that he's doing most often is in you and through you. 
And the Lord sends Gideon out. I love, I love the sarcasm that's even here. Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. And he sends Gideon out, but Gideon just keeps making excuses. He says in verse 15, but please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least of my father's house. He says, my homies are weak. We aren't the, we aren't the, we aren't the mighty warrior clan. We, we, we ain't even in the football team. We're on the chess team. You, you came and got, now I love chess, but if I'm calling someone to be a warrior with me and we're going to go face that battle, I'm not getting the chess player. I mean, you know, you got some good strategy. That's good for you. But you got soft hands, right? I need a, I need a warrior. As a matter of fact, not only did you come to the wrong place that we're the weakest clan, I'm the least in my own family. You could have at least picked my brother Brutus. He's a chess player too, but he also knows how to play pickleball. He's, got, he's at least got some agility. He's the stud of our family. Maybe he can do it. You know, my dad used to say all the time, you can make excuses or you can make a difference, but you can't do both. I never knew he got that from the Bible, but that's, that's what this sounds like a lot. Verse 16, and the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. Man, if you underline in your Bible, you should, you should underline every time that's written because it's written well over 100 times. But I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. That's what God says. I'm so powerful, I don't even need the army. I just need your availability, Gideon. We're going to beat him as one man. Notice, too, when Gideon comes with his excuses, is that Jesus didn't give him a pep talk and just say, little buddy, you can do it. I know what you've got in you. Listen, little bud, I, I know. If you just try hard enough, if you just give it your best shot, if you just leave it all on the field, you can do this, little bro. Jesus didn't say any of that. Do you see what he said after his, that you just underlined? I will be with you. See, Gideon didn't need more self-confidence. He needed more God-reliance. This is the same promise the Lord gave Moses in Exodus. You remember that? You remember Moses' excuse? God. I'm an 80-year-old man who can't speak well. I talk like Mickey Mouse. I, I don't know what his problem was, but he couldn't get the job done. It's also the very same promise that Jesus gives his followers in Matthew 28. And behold, I am with you always, he says, even to the end of the age. Because, friends, it's not about your boldness and your strategy and your cunning and your charm and your persistence. Nope. It's just all about him. I remember this great illustration. In 1990, <clears throat> Michael Jordan scored 69 points in one game, playoff game at that. Career high over a stunning 
career for him. I think I have this picture of Stacy King up there. The same night as rookie teammate Stacy King came in late in the game and made one point, a single free throw. In the post-game conference they had won, Jordan had had this incredible game, and they asked Stacy what he thought about the game. This is what he said. I will always remember this as the night that Michael and Jordan and I combined for 70 points. 69 for Michael, one for him. We combined for 70. This is Gideon when he tells his grandkids one day. Oh, there was that time when I wouldn't killed the Midianites. Well, actually, I didn't do much. But God did it all. There's this myth in Christian circles. I, th- I think I even learned it in Sunday school. That God will never give you more than you can handle. You ever heard of that? God will never give you more than you can handle. That's not only a myth. It's the very opposite of what Scripture teaches. Friends, God will always give you more than you can handle. He has called you and equipped you to live a supernatural life, and that will always be more than you can handle. But it will never be more than he can handle. And maybe my Sunday school teacher meant this, but the subtle change has seismic differences. Friends, God's going to call you to do some supernatural things for him, and they're all going to be bigger than you. They're going to be beyond your strength and beyond your budget. They're going to be beyond your capacity to dream. They're going to be beyond your network. He's called you to be a minister of reconciliation, meaning he's called you to go into this broken world marred by sin and restore a connection between God and them. And I don't know about you, but I've never been able to change the human heart. Only God can do that. He does all the things. We just have to say, God, I'm available. Why don't you use me? It says in verse 17, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it's you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until your return. And the story goes on that he went and got a little food offering and brought it. And Jesus called down and zapped up the food and performed this sign. And now Gideon knows, right? He should be good. He saw what God can do, but he's not. He, He's going to give a series of tests. He's going to do the whole fleece thing, and he's going to say, hey, okay, why don't we do this? If I wake up tomorrow and the ground is wet, but this little blanket is dry, I'm going to know it's you. And it happened just like he said. And then he knows that God might be angry with him, and so he says the next day, oh, one more time, let's reverse it. Let me come out and, 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 and let, let, the, let the blanket be dry, but then the ground be wet. And that's exactly how it happens. And if just to convince him one more time as they actually get to the battlefield, and the story is, you know, they had 20,000 warriors. And God even says, if you read it, 
in the next chapter, he says, that's too many warriors. Because if they go in there, they're going to think that each one of them killed 10 or 15 by themselves. And then they're going to get boastful and proud. So you got way too many men. You just got to get that thing down. He takes them up on a mountain and Gideon says, anybody's afraid and just wants to go home and watch uh, Netflix, y'all go ahead. And they jet. And then he's got 10,000 and Jesus says, well, that's still too many. That's, they're still going to boast about it. And so he sends everyone who drinks water like a normal person out of a pond, sends all of them home too. And there were, they're left with 300 chess players. And then God says, I got this incredible strategy. Don't even bring any weapons. You don't need them. You need a horn and a glass jar and a torch. Watch this. This is going to be amazing. We're going to surround the army. We're going to blow the horn and break the glass and light the torch. And when we do that, they're going to all kill themselves. And that's exactly how it happened. Got two more lessons for us from this text before we're done. Really, the two things that I really want you to walk away with. One is that revival starts at home. Skip down to verse 25. We didn't read this in the reading lesson, but before the battle, before all those, this is still in the preparation stage. Verse 25 That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Before Gideon could be the warrior who didn't fight, before he could do anything with the armies, Gideon, God says, Gideon, you got to deal with your own idols. His first assignment was to get rid of the idol in his house, in his father's house. Because, friends, before you can do battle with the enemies around you, you need to throw off the enemies within you. These idols weaken you. They make you ineffective in what God has for you. And maybe you would say, that's weird. We don't have idols. Maybe you don't really understand what they are. For Gideon's family, these idols weren't things instead of God. They worshiped God. These were things they worshiped in addition to God. They had never rejected God. They had just substantiated him with other idols that guaranteed other things that they really wanted. So God didn't come through the way they wanted. And so the other, he's like, well, maybe we can borrow these other little, you know, the, we'll worship the sun God and the rain God and the fertility God. We'll worship those other things too. And we'll give them a place in our lives just like we do God. So now God's not the sole focus of our worship. He's just one of several. They weren't idols in the place of God. They were idols in addition to God. Now, again, we hear that in our day's time. You're like, that's some silly ancient superstition. Statues, really? Let me bring this to your neighborhood. Let's expose our idols. Our idols 
or any place in our lives that we aren't completely sure we can trust God. And so we hold on to other things as a backup. If God doesn't come through, And the way that I know that they're idols in my life are disobedience and anxiety. Any area that the Bible clearly says this should be my next step of faith, if I resist obeying what he's telling me to, I know that there's some kind of idol in my heart that I'm worshiping. Maybe it's the idol of relationships. And you don't, you don't believe you can trust God for the right person. And so you take shortcuts and you go around God's word. God's word clearly says, don't be unequally yoked. Don't marry an unbeliever. But we tell God, but God, he's cute. And no one else is calling me. See what we've done? We've taken, we have, we have disobeyed God's clear grace-filled rule for us. And we have stepped around it because we don't believe he's working fast enough. It's disobedience, and then it's anxiety. Anything that really causes real, and I'm not talking about clinical anxiety of chemicals in your brain. I'm just talking about things that make me really, really nervous. For, for me, these are things like my savings account. When God prompts my heart to give something, and I'm like, God, I can't give that. You know, the hot, hot water heater broke last week. All that little cush money's gone. I got three kids in braces. We give him all the excuses why we can't follow him in obedience. And because of that, that idol or the loss of that idol is what causes anxiety in us. That's how we know it's an idol. We might not have a big Asherah pole up there, but it's, it's there. Disobedience is always accompanied by anxiety. If we're worried about our ability to hold on to these things, maybe you worry about your kids all the time. Because you feel like you can't trust God with them. Friends, before God uses you in a mission, he has to go to war against your idols. You can't do war and enemy, you can't do battle with the enemies outside until you've gone to war with the enemies on the inside. And this is where revival starts. Maybe many of you have been following the Revival at Asbury University. Anybody seen anything about the revival at Asbury University? It's a Christian university in Wilmore, Kentucky. And Wednesday morning, several hundred students gathered for their chapel service. Now, I used to go to a Christian university, and I can say with all confidence, chapel services are the worst. No one wants to go. They're always early. You want to be sleeping, but you got to go and scan your little card so they know you went to chapel. So I'm sure as the students got there, maybe there was not this great expectation of what God was going to do. But God did something. And the, the service is still going. I got a picture. Do I have a picture of that? Isn't that incredible? This is not altered. There's a, the, the sun's out and it's shining. They have a big light in the middle of the dome. And it just like looks like it's the power of God's coming down on that guy's getting prayed for. That's the next Gideon right there, man. He was playing chess a few hours ago. And now he's, God's sending him to a Muslim country. 
You got the other picture? This is yesterday. I talked to a friend of mine who's there. Got there about 4 o'clock yesterday. Several hundred people that were there. Said by 6 o'clock yesterday there was standing room only. Over 1,500 more people have come. And I said, man, what's so unique about it? He says, it's like God opened up some sort of portal and just poured his love in the place. Wow. This is not the first revival they've had here. I think I got one more picture of an old school. Did I throw that other picture in there? Maybe not. In 1970, they had a revival that lasted 10 days. Same, same building. Go back even further than that. Just a few miles from that place in 1900, there was a revival that lasted two weeks. A hundred years before that, just a few miles down the road from that, the Great Red River Revival, one that started in the early 1800s, which was the beginning of the Second Great Awakening that lasted 35 years and more than a million people were converted. The amazing thing about it is there's no preaching going on here. The chapel speaker got up and just thought that maybe God was doing something else. And so the worship just came and the Lord, of God, the, the Lord just poured his love in that place. This is what I'm praying for, friends. A couple months ago, Jason and Jamie and I were at a little conference in Dallas, and we, we tasted a little moment like this. You remember? The guy preached, and he just really sensed the Spirit was moving, and he just began to pray over us, all pastors and ministers and leaders in the room, a couple hundred of us maybe. We just didn't want to leave. When you find the manifest presence of the Lord, you don't want to leave. That's why these things last for weeks. Revival starts at home. If God's ever going to reach our city, it's going to start in your home. It's going to start in your heart. He brings revival to your heart before he brings it to the city. And I'm praying for revival in the city and every one of our churches. But it's going to start with you. Second thing I just want you to notice before we're done is that courage is not the absence of fear. It's following God through the fear. God's one-line answer to Gideon that is repeated several times in the book. When Gideon was afraid and he felt his sense of inadequacy, God just simply says, Gideon, I'm, I'm with you. That's God's one-line answer to every feeling of fear and inadequacy. You ever felt fearful and inadequate? I do every day, if I can be honest with you. Can you imagine what it would be like if any situation, that the bodily presence of Jesus was with you? And right before you went into a surgery, he just grabbed your hand, put his arm around you, and he said, hey, this is going to be okay. I'm, I'm with you. Wouldn't that comfort your heart? 
or going into a new job or a new relationship and there's Jesus himself saying, hey, this is going to be okay, I'm, I'm with you. Maybe going to talk to someone and share the gospel with them and you're fearful and you got the lump in your throat and you're like, this is not going to be received well, Lord. Don't, ooh, I'm a chess player. He said, it's okay, I'm with you. Dealing with a problem in your home. He just drinks coffee with you in the morning. He just wants to remind you, hey, I'm with you. You read about any secular article focusing on fear, it's going to almost talk, it always talks about banishing whatever thoughts cause fear. Control your thoughts. Don't think about the things that scare you. Go to your happy place. But God's peace comes a different way. It's not closing our eyes to the things that make us afraid, but it's opening our eyes to the presence of God beside us. You know who the Midian army was in the presence of God? Colossians says that the power of God is so great that we exist today and our atoms actually connect to each other and make up our DNA and everything that's a part of us, that those things actually stick together by the word of his power. And if he quit saying that word, everything would vanish. That's how powerful our God is. That's why we sing songs like there's just nothing that my God can't do because we want to remind you of this scriptural truth that God wants to do supernatural things in the world and he wants to do them through you and our heart needs to be reminded that there's simply nothing that God can't do. So Gideon just keeps asking God to prove that he's with him with the fleas. He actually gets to the battlefield and he's scared again. And God, God like preempts this one and says, hey, Gideon, I know you're scared. It's fine. Um, you don't have to tell me. I get it. Let's not do the whole wet and dry thing again. But if you want, you can just sneak on down to the front of the enemy lines. And I've been talking to them about you. This is a really cool story. So Gideon goes down there. and He's listening real closely. And he hears two soldiers at the gate. And one of them said, I dreamed last night that we have this like mighty army. <laughs> and some loaf of bread comes rolling through and knocks us all, all out like, uh, like bowling pins. Doesn't say bowling pins, but you know, the thing, you can read it. And the other one interprets his dream by saying, oh, that's Gideon from the tribe of Manasseh. One, I love that God called him a, a, a loaf of bread. That's pretty awesome, right? It's kind of true to his name. And that God used him. When Gideon asked that God would prove that he's actually with him, this is what we use. This is our fleece moment. And it's really a knock on our faith that we have to have those. We give God these random litmus tests to prove if he wants us to do something. Have you ever done this to God? I've told you this story before. I remember when I saw Ashley across the sanctuary at Willow Point one Sunday. She was new. And she was hot. And I was like, Lord, could that be the one that I'm supposed to marry and have babies with one day? Is that her? And I gave the Lord this test. I said, okay, Lord. 
if she comes back next week wearing glasses, I told the Lord this. So next Sunday, I'm remembering because I'm thinking, oh, this is my fleece moment, my lack of faith. I show up, I'm ready. Lo and behold, she comes strutting in the back door with glasses on. And I have a Holy Spirit moment right there in the front of the church. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I'm not saying it's wrong to ask for confirmation. Though if you do, it should be like one of a thousand pieces of your discernment. Your decision-making process, the bulk of which should just be the word of God and good counsel from other people who are walking with God. But can I tell you, that's not really the main point being made here. In fact, Gideon knew what he was doing was unwise. We don't have time to get to it. In verse 39, Gideon tells God, God, please don't be angry with me for asking this, but but I need one more assurance. And Gideon's main question was not whether God wanted him to do this. That was clear. But God, how do I know you're really on my side? And how do I know you're really in control? How do I know you're really for me? And how do I know that you actually have the power to accomplish what you're saying? And friends, we, we have something so far greater than the fleece. To show us that God is in control and that God is on our side. And that's the cross. The cross shows us that God's in control because he took the worst action of men in the history of mankind. And he actually turned the plan for our good. We therefore know that what he can do in the dark times of our lives is turn the most evil thing. For our good. Isn't that amazing that we know that God's in control and that we also know that He's on our side? Romans 5 8 says, But God demonstrates His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that amazing? We don't need a fleece. When you're walking through the darkest times in your life, you don't have to say, God, are you still there? He's there. All we have to do is look back to the cross. Jesus said of himself, greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And Jesus went and did it. So when you're walking through bad weeks, scary seasons, dark times, you can look back on the cross. I love that hymn we used to sing, Oh, the Wonderful Cross. This is also the reminder of communion that we take every week. When we're reminded of the cross. And Jesus knew we would forget it. He knew that we would forget that he's on our side and that he's got the power to take the darkest thing and turn it around for our good. He knew we would forget. So he said, listen, when you gather together, I want you to have this physical reminder of this inward reality. That I'm with you and that I'm for you. Communion continually reminds us of that. I'm going to invite the band up. But before we go into this, the communion service will be here. We've got time. I want you to get alone with the Lord just right where you are. And I want you to ask God two questions this morning. Lord, what part of my heart 
needs revived. Maybe you don't think you got any idols at home. Maybe you don't. I, don't. I don't know, but he knows. And it's a great place to start. And he's going to lovingly tell you if you invite him to tell you. He's just going to just lay it on your heart. Relationships or comfort or power or money. He's just going to bring it up to you. Would you just ask him, Lord, what, what idols in my heart need to be dealt with? What needs to be revived in me? And then secondly, where is God leading you to take a step of courage, a step of faith? Is it sharing the gospel with a coworker or a friend or someone at school? Is it restoring a broken relationship where they did 99% of the wrong and they hurt you deeply and you have pushed them away and not answered their calls? And, and maybe you just need to bring restoration there. Maybe it's someone in this very room that you're upset with and they don't even know you're upset, but you've got a thing with them. And Jesus says, before you bring me any gifts to the altar, just, just leave your gift and I want you to go and reconcile. That's the real gift. That's how, that's how you know you're in harmony with me. It's reconciliation. And maybe that's the step of faith. And you haven't heard God speak to you in a long time and that's the thing that's blocking and you just need to go deal with that. Maybe the person that injured you or hurt you that you've harbored bitterness for is someone that's already passed away or someone that lives in a different state, that's fine. Just ask that God would get rid of that bitterness and replace it with a spirit of forgiveness in your heart. That you would release them from the hurt that they've done to you. You'd just release it. You'd let God, the righteous judge, deal with them. He said he's going to deal with them. You don't have to deal with them. You could just release it. Maybe you're confused about your identity. Someone's told you something your whole life and it's contrary to the word of God and what he says about you and you've just let the world define you. You've let the voice of the enemy in your head. You've let a teacher from middle school, whatever it is, you let a, a bully from elementary school define who you are. Then you've carried that with you and the enemy just amplifies that voice in your head again and again. He says, you're too screwed up for God to use. You've messed up too much. Look at what you did in high school and look at who you slept with and look at, look at all the things that you did. And you just gotta, you gotta, you gotta shut that voice up and you gotta come to God and say, God, would you, would you define me? Would you, would you remind me that I'm a, a daughter or a son of the most high God? That I've been clothed in your righteousness? That you're no longer holding my sin against me? You placed all of that sin on the cross of Christ and so now I'm not walking in condemnation I can walk in freedom maybe you've just been sitting on the sideline for a really long time something in church hurt you something took the wind out of your sails and it's time to just tell the Lord Lord I want to be used again Whatever you have for me, my yielded yes is on the table. Lord, I want to be used again. We got a prayer team in the back that would love to pray with you. We got communion servers at their stations, but I, I want to pray over you first. And I want us to have a posture of just desperation for God to move.
Some of you have got kids that have wandered away from the Lord. Their hearts are not with the Lord. And you've been praying and praying and persisting and praying that God would, 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 would grab their hearts. Maybe you just need to go pray with one of our prayer team. Maybe God's calling you to, man, this step is just, this step seems so difficult. It's a call to adopt, a call to restore. The, the, any of those, they just seem so difficult. Maybe you would just join up with one of our prayer team or our pastors and just say, would you just pray with me as I just try to follow God? You do what the Lord leaves on your heart. God, I, I pray over our people. I pray over your people. These are your people. You're our lead pastor. We're following you. You tell us what we need to do. We'll stay here all afternoon if you need us to, if you want us to. Lord, I pray that you would open up one of those portals and pour out your love on us, that we would be reminded of the depth of your love, that it's greater and it's higher and it's deeper and it's wider than we could even know or think. Lord, would you remind us of how much you love us as sons and daughters? Would you restore your call in our life, the one that we've forgotten because of the enemy? Lord, would you deal with this apathetic spirit that's in us? Lord, do what only you can do. Lord, lead us as you will. Holy Spirit, do a work in our lives and our hearts. It's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray, amen. Prayer team's in the back. I'll join them. Communion servers, you do business with God whatever he's put in your heart.